Do they have ticks in Sweden? Sweden has a tick problem. What? No, they don't. Do they really? Actually, it is a big problem. Last summer, a record number of people got tick-borne encephalitis. What the fuck? Are you serious? Yeah, both my grandparents died from ticks. Had to give them a closed casket funeral. Okay, Josh, I actually have an uncle with Lyme. And believe me, if you ask him, it was not worth the pleasant picnic in the park. He's fucked. Welcome back to the Blood and Black Run Podcast. I'm Ryan from ColdSplitation.com, and I'm joined with my co-host, Martin. How's it going? Doing pretty well. We are in the midst of a twofer on the show. Talked about this last time when we were doing our episode on... What did we do last time? Cruel <laughs> Intentions? How dare you? <laughs> yeah, I know. I, I forgot. Uh, our last episode on Cruel Intentions, uh, we talked about what we wanted to do for the show for the next two weeks, and uh, we came up with a game plan of of uh, covering a, a newer film that's just released, and also an older film by the same director, and one that you had not seen. And we've actually covered this director before as well. Did his that's true? Did his other film? So I think you can surmise from that that we're talking about Ari Aster, and we're covering on this episode Midsummer. Is 2019 film. Can you, uh, 2019, four years ago already? Good Lord. Couldn't believe that. I was like, no. No, this just released. <laughs> like, maybe two years ago. No, it's 2019. Same, it's like the same thing when we did The Lighthouse. We were like, wait, how long ago did this, did this come out? But yeah, you've uh, you never seen Midsummer. Yeah, but it's a film that I knew. That's where the name Ari Aster, where I knew him from, because okay. when Midsummer came out, uh, there are a lot of wannabe film critics saying on the social media, what a fantastic film. Mm. Yeah, and that's kind of the problematic thing about Midsummer now, is that it has, I don't know, it has... Um, kind of become the staple of like the guy who really is like a hardcore film buff right it's like hey guys have you ever heard of this band called neutral milk hotel yeah have it they're pretty hip and cool yeah that's it's i think you nailed it it's kind of the same uh the same way that that works out with the with the indie or you know which that also makes me a phony too because i also love neutral milk hotel and i've seen yeah. why yeah, and it's uh, you know, it's not a bad thing to like uh those things that become the favorites, but I do have to say, it's it kind of gets annoying, especially when you do have a film like Midsummer, where, in my opinion, I do really like it. I think it's a really really great film, and yeah, at the same time, I'm kind of afraid to be like to be that guy who's like, yeah, I really like Midsummer, um, because I don't want people to think that my personality is uh, immediately jumping on Letterbox and writing a fifteen hundred. <laughs> 
word review about the angles employed in the movie, <laughs> you know, or the uh, the diametric, uh, you know, symmetry of the movie. Um, all those Dutch angles. Because I'm not that person, right? I, I mean, I do... I shouldn't say that. I do use Letterboxd. I use Letterboxd to just keep track of the movies that I've watched, like, so that I'm not an older man saying, wait a second, did, did I see that movie? That yeah, it's, especially the the less memorable movies, but, but so I do use it, but I'm not like one of those people who jumps on there and has, you know, people following them and 150 fans that are waiting I, for my review. I do say tongue-in-cheek, though, too, because, again, um, like, I get it. Because, I mean, like, that same year, I mean, The Lighthouse came out. And yeah. that's literally a film that's in the same, like, kind of vein and category. Yep. And, you know, got a lot of hype and praise. And I think the biggest thing about the hype and praise from these sorts of people is that um, it's hard to tell now, you know, especially after it releases and it does get a lot of hype, whether this person is truly saying their opinion like that's literally how they feel or did they take that opinion from someone else and now it's become their personality right like so so they saw it and they were intrigued by it or something but then they heard that everyone thinks it's acclaimed and now they've kind of run with it and perhaps they don't necessarily feel as outrageously um in love with it as they make it out to be but now they they feel like they have to be so i mean I don't know. It's it, like I said, I, I, it's not a, it's not a bother to me either way. Like, um, I can admit that I like it. And also I tend to stay away from just say like proclaiming it because I don't want to be lumped into that same category of people. The witch is the same way, right? Like rubber eggers is the witch, which we, you know, we didn't do, but, um, we talked about potentially doing at some point. Well, we will now. Yeah. Um, it, it's the same way. Like when that came out and the Babadook, that's literally all you heard about on Reddit, on the horror Reddit, the subreddit. That is, if I actually made a joke post on there saying, if you had to pick one, the Babadook, the witch, or um, hereditary, which one would you take? I was gonna say the Conjuring Four. Yeah, I didn't realize until like when I was at Walmart the other day they had a Conjuring pack. There's already like seven movies. Well, it's it's an extended universe now. I know. You know, you've got because you got all the Annabelles. They technically fit into the Conjuring yeah. universe stuff. Like no, that. I know, but I'm just saying, like, oh, that's awful. So yeah, I can I can see why if you're like a fan of like the, the genre, you're like, oh, it, the fucking uh, Midsummer, great. This is this is great. Oh, uh, whatever Jordan Peele's doing, great. Oh, this great. This you know, right. Yeah, I mean, so so like I don't want to be a snob or anything. If you like Midsummer, great. Glad you enjoyed it. Um, it it just has gotten a lot of praise, and and it's kind of like it it it's become so sort of embarrassing to have to be able to like say, yeah, I really like that movie. Or this is kind of the same with Hereditary too. Uh, you have you know people who expound upon their the revelations of Hereditary and Midsummer, and yep, I think they're both great movies. They did a really good job. Are they the best movies of like the past fifty years? I don't know. It's up for debate. Um, with that said, though, let's uh, let's take a break for a second. Talk about the beer that we have on the show. Um, and I kind of feel bad about this one. It's a repeat brewery. We literally just had them on the show last week. Well, you shouldn't feel bad. We're trying to be sponsored. 
We're reaching oh. out there. We're being ambassadors. Because Jenny passed us up on the ambassadorship program. Oh, did for, they? Go? No, I, I don't know. <laughs> I didn't hear anything back about it. But <laughs> well, maybe it's still being processed. Maybe it is. Don't I was just throwing that away. We could, you know, maybe they were getting ready to file that right now, and they're like, "Wait, wait, hold on, hold on." Yep. Well, we have another beer on the show today from Treehouse Brewing, which you know what? You can never have too many Treehouse beers. I don't think it is on Untapped. I think the number one brewery. For, uh, for with all of its beer ratings, oh, really? I, I believe so. That's what I saw. Um, where it, at least it has the number one IPA. I can't remember. Um, but anyway, can't can't go wrong with Treehouse. We had them last time, but it was a completely different type of beer. So this time we thought we'd go instead of an IPA, which we've I think we've had quite a bit um, recently. Going with their house lager, but it's not just the house lager. We wouldn't. We wouldn't go so plain. It's a house lager with lime that was stored in tequila barrels. So you get the nice crispness of their lager, get a nice little lime bite, and you've got the tequila flavoring that kind of makes this taste like a beer margarita. So we did a beer mimosa last time, We're doing a beer margarita this time. Um, are you a fan of margaritas? The Bud Light margaritas? No, 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 no. Do they still make those? That that don't count. <laughs> no, they. I've never. They, I've never how about really the made. How about the Bud Light Clamato? <laughs> They're still working for it because people buy it. Oh, I know there is. Yeah. Um, I've never really had like a straight up margarita. Yeah, I don't think I really ever have. Wow. I'll have to make you one. We got all the, we got the triple sec over here. We got some limes. We got tequila. We got the rocks tequila, actually, I believe. Um, I bought it. I didn't even realize it was a rocks tequila. But yeah, we have the rocks tequila. Um, and yeah, yeah, we'll have to, we'll have to make it. I'll, I'll salt you up the rim and everything. Ooh. Yeah, I've never really uh, sat down and uh, had one. I mean, if you like this beer, I think you'd enjoy. This beer is like a t- toned down margarita, in my opinion. Like, you know, margarita is is similar to this, but it's kind of it's stronger. Um, you know, it has that tequila flavor, and if you like tequila, you're gonna like a margarita because it's a nice um, treat with the lime. So with this one, I think, like I said, I think this does come close to being a margarita-esque beer. Um, you do have a nice crisp lager flavor here. Um, and the, the tequila is probably the second thing that comes out right away. Uh, you do get a nice tequila flavor to it. Uh, at the same time, it's not overpowering. This is not a uh, heavy alcohol beer either. It's It only clocks in at like 4.7% ABV. So it's not like this is going to be uh, like a 10%er or something like that. It's a nice, light uh, refreshing, drinkable beer, uh, crushable beer, probably. And uh, you also get that nice little hint of lime at the end, which is giving you that uh, summertime, uh, easy living sort of uh, style to it, which, you know, perfect for a lawnmower drinking beer. Just like how uh, temperature is going to be fr- uh, dropping down. And, uh... <laughs> yeah. Perfect, perfect time to be drinking it when it's 40 degrees outside. Hey, we just had an 80 degree day, but it's upstate New York, so uh, 
future three. We're getting snow now. <laughs> yeah. Um. Yeah. So I mean, I definitely I like this. I thought I would like it a little bit more, but I I mean, I think it's just a really solid brew all around. Um, the tequila element to it, I think it makes this really nice, and it is very drinkable, very uh, crushable. And the one thing that I'll say, and I think you'll agree, and you'll uh, also put in your opinion about this, but this only comes in a four pack, and then with a four pack, it's like sixteen dollars, and that four pick is a twelve ounce can. So that's the big downside to this beer is that it is expensive for what you get. And ultimately for a 12 ounce can, uh, in a style like this, that's 4.7% really light on the ABV. I would have expected a six pack for that price. Yeah, I agree. I mean, as much as I kind of mull over and kind of think in my head, whether or not I've had a margarita before, I've had margarita flavored things. And like, obviously the both like margarita stuff. It's something I know I'd like, but I just, Never really go out of my way for mixed drinks, mm-hmm. you know. And uh, tequila and lime is always a nice choice, and lime and a light lager is even a better choice. Uh, this works really well, and it's done really well. The log, the light lager itself is very good. Uh, does have a nice, like, crisp flavor to it. You know, you do get a little bit of malt, very crisp refreshing easy to drink kind of reminds me of like uh founder solid gold which is a really good you know uh light lager the lime is uh get in the front and the back it's like actually tastes like a real lime and not like a you know even though i do enjoy a bud light lime here there the lime in there is very sugary and sweet and candy yeah an artificial, this lime is definitely more real, kind of more zesty, a little bit more rindy. The tequila part is great in this, though, because that, you know this thing's at 4.5%. That tequila heat is, uh, is there, and when you drink this, you do get, like, a nice, like, kind of feeling that you take, like, you took a shot of tequila, like, because your lungs are like, ooh, that's nice heat right there, you know, to go with it. That's a little pep. Mm-hmm. This is a very good beer. This is, like, a good... If like oh, I shouldn't say good, this is like great. If you were like out on the beach playing volleyball with your friends, you know, grilling some burgers and sausages and brats, ball games about to come on, Sterling's making the call for the Yankees, and you listen to the radio, having a dandy time. The only problem is, as you said, and this is the biggest negative takeaway on it: for sixteen dollars for a four pack and it's in twelve ounce cans is uh, that's a fucking travesty. Yeah. I, I don't know what the markup is. Right. I'd like the uh, the tequila barrels they use to age this thing. But fuck me. That I mean, that's like the biggest sin of this thing at all. Because as you said, you either make it a four-pack of this of 16-ounce cans or you make it a six-pack of 12-ounce. I would say preferably a four-pack of the 16-ounce. But I mean, it's still either way. It, it's not good. It's not bueno. As good as it is, I can't recommend you go and yeah, you know, blow up a paycheck to keep your fringe stock with it. Yeah, I uh, yeah, I mean, I I don't like like you said, I don't know what their cost balance is for this beer, so maybe that's one of the reasons. But you would think brewing a house lager, you know, they've already probably got the house lager. You know, it's not like it's a different beer they're going to brew too. This is 
This is something that they routinely brew. So not only that, the the canning on it, like for the label, is chintzy as shit compared to like the rest of them. Like the rest of theirs, like have these nice ornate, like you know, beautiful labels. This one has just like house, like yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it does it does feel like you're getting shafted a little bit by only getting the four pack of the twelve ounce. But I don't know. I uh, I would still like I I think they probably do a rotation of these types of house loggers and. I would check this out again and see what else they do. Um, and also one caveat too, that it was kind of, it's kind of annoying. If you are getting the house lager, you can only get one per person when you're there. So you can't, um, like you can't order two or three of these. If you want to supplement only getting four, if you want to make it a 12 pack by ordering three, too bad. You can't, you can only order one per person. And even if you're picking up for someone else, uh, like you wanted to get one for yourself and one for someone else. Nope. One per person. So keep that in mind if you're actually going to go to Treehouse and get it. All right. All right. Let's talk about Midsummer. Um, you know what? This is a movie that I uh I really did want to talk about. It's another one of those movies like The Lighthouse where I feel like there's a lot of things to discuss, a lot of things to bring up. Um and it is difficult to find out where to start. But I think in my case, I know where I want to start. And I want to start right at the beginning. Because for me, Midsummer's beginning is a pretty harrowing experience. I think that it does a very good job of uh, setting up the themes of the movie without really telling you what the themes of the movie are going to be. You really don't know if you didn't come into this movie. Let's say you didn't hear about it at all. You were just seeing it for the first time. I feel like going into the beginning of this movie, you get the themes thrown at you, but you're really not sure where it's all going to go because you know it's about this midsummer festival, but the the opening doesn't really make that apparent. Um, I guess, what did you think about the opening first? I'll let you go ahead and then I'll segue in. Uh, it was all right. I didn't really think too much of it. Has kind of like a stereotypical. Uh, well, not in what happens to her family, but just like kind of set up of like just like oh, eerie things are weird. Mm. Don't know what's going on. Um. You can kind of see as you're watching this, you know, with Hereditary, the whole crux of the film being, you know, this idea of like mental illness, but also, you know, with demons, uh, you know, they throw it. Well, they put he Ari Aster puts out there front and center that our protagonist is going to be, you know, somebody who's bipolar and also has, you know, their own mental illness. Um, he was, he was all right. Um, I think the, ch- the chilling aspect that you were at, uh, talking about, I didn't really get a full effect of because you watched this at night, I watched this in day, mm. and I had an awful fucking glare for the opening part. So yeah, I was like, "What's going on there?" Like, so I kind of you know I, until like the lightning like kind of hit, and then like you see like, "Oh, she's got like a tube shoved in her goddamn mouth." What's up with that? Yeah. Uh, well, I guess so. Like, what I really like about this this moment, this scene is, first of all, you get that opening shot of slowly going to the house, 
and you get the phone call that that you know she makes to her parents and you see her parents in bed and everything looks great you know they're it's obviously late at night they're sleeping phone goes to voicemail and you just hear her saying you know what i'm worried uh my you know talk to my sister and she sounded kind of weird um so i just want to check on you and then the film goes through this really great uh se- se- sequence of um showing florence Pugh and how like she's so upset and it it does a really great job of setting up that that sense of dread there's just a pervading sense of dread throughout this opening moment and it kind of holds off on you it kind of you know you kind of get normalcy at times you get um her calling christian and saying you know what um i guess maybe maybe i am overreacting and you know she's kind of going back and forth between whether she actually wants to talk to him or not because she feels like she leans on him too much anyway um but then like it kind of it hits you like you you segue away and um you find out that she's gone to the house and they know that she's you know that she's she's found out that they're actually all dead that her sister has um basically started the car rolled down all the garage doors uh not only that but ran like hose into the house into her parents bedroom locked it all up and uh then basically sucked on the hose herself stuck it stuck it in her mouth so that there was like no way that she was ever <laughs> you know uh gonna get out of that one and it has this really nice creep um as though we're like part of the emt crew that that are coming into this house and having to basically like see this scene of how this is posed and i think it does a really great job of of showing the morbidity of this moment and a realness to um something that i think doesn't happen a lot in movies uh, the realness of the crime scene or the realness of murder or even death you know like seeing the the um posthumous death um in a lot of movies and i think i might have talked about this in hereditary too a lot of movies um kind of shy away from the element of showing how the seriousness of death so the murder scene is kind of shown but you know you get like guys cracking wise like you know a csi miami type thing um but in uh, or a Halloween movie about like oh, I can't wait to fuck the cadaver, right? It, it, or, or even you know in other horror movies too, the, the act of death there is almost like um, catharsis for the audience. It's not really meant to be a serious moment. Um, it's it's a uh, it you know a lot of times in slasher movies it's it's com- in our eyes completely warranted um, because the, these guys suck. You know the characters suck, and but in this case you have this very real and grim and disturbing um posing of the corpses uh in that that zoom in to the messages where we have we know that Florence Pugh is going to live with this grief of you know perhaps not doing what she thinks she should have done to check on them before the inevitable occurred uh she obviously she couldn't have done anything because at that time her message makes more sense she's going dark right well, literally I mean- but, I mean, well, I mean, it's her fault. She said she was emailing her family. Who the fuck? <laughs> yeah, yeah. That was the scariest part. Who's emailing their family? <laughs> I said, I said, sent over a hot uh, email to to my sister. She's not responding. Yeah. I got on MSN Messenger. Nothing. <laughs> Ain't hearing. <laughs> um, no, you're right. Because, I mean, in this, as the film kind of goes on, too, this film and in Hereditary, too, you know, Ari Aster 
does do a really good job in the payoffs when it comes to the death and the violence. It's something that's worked up to. It's something that's it's earned. Mm-hmm. It's not it's not bashing you over the head with gratuity like when we were stu- see when we just did the new Evil Dead, you know. Yeah. Obviously that's kind of the Evil Dead shtick, you know, the to the point where it's gruesome and kind of co- comedic, but Ari Aster, you know, at least in these two films, you know, is very patient, works up to those moments. Right. And gives you and gives you something that's horrific, you know, nerve wracking, but also like, as you said, like framed in a way that's like, oh yeah, like wow, that's you know, that's actually puts you in a place of like, holy shit, you know. Yeah, exactly. And and not only that, but like I think too, you know, between hereditary and this, the we we have to deal as the audience, we have to deal with the aftermath too. Right, like, no, in in a murder movie or a slasher, you're not there later on when the cops are like, eh, uh, your loved one was chopped up into fifteen pieces. Um, you're not there for that because you can kind of forget about the aftermath because it's not relevant at that point. Like the 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 heroine has won, the final girl has won. Uh, you don't have to deal with the aftermath. But both Hereditary and um, Midsummer force you to deal with the aftermath. Um, and in this case, directly after the aftermath, I mean, hereditary does too. You, you, you know, you get the, the grisly reveal, but in this one, say the decapitation and yeah, you know, the aftermath of it. And here it's, you know, you, you, you actually, you have to kind of live through Florence Pugh's grief here. You have to, and, and it's, it's really, she does a great job. Like it's very disconcerting because for, especially for me too, I don't deal with grief very well, especially from other people. And this movie uh, kind of resonates with me too, um, as we'll talk about, because of um, empathy or lack thereof or um, having empathy but not really knowing how to express it uh, is something that I often um, have a hard time dealing with. And I think that that opening scene, like it's it's so um, difficult because it kind of does put you in that situation of, you know, you're an outsider, but you are dealing with the grief that Florence Pugh's feeling and you just see them keeled over literally like physically uh, in pain. And it's, it's very uh, wrenching, I would say uh, opening scene. And then you have that zoom into the uh, uh, fluttering snow. That's that lasts for quite a while. And I question that. Why does the snow last for so long? And it, to me, it kind of signals the end of the movie snow into ashes um it kind of has that sort of like reciprocity of we're gonna be this is what we're gonna be seeing um so i really i like if nothing else of midsummer if you don't like anything else about midsummer i do think that the opening itself is one of the best moments that you get from this film it's just um very very chilling and very packed with with detail um, so then you kind of move on, you know, you know, you things get kind of normal and, uh, you kind of find that, you know, Florence Pugh's character, Danny and Christian, they, you know, she's still dealing with the grief, obviously. Um, she actually, I should say not dealing with it. You know, anytime family's mentioned, she packs up her shit and leaves, <laughs> you know, basically packs a suitcase, moves to France, 
anytime families mention. Um, but you kind of get this, obviously, this this uh, feeling that you know the the relationship between Danny and Christian is strained already, like right right off the bat. And you know, it might we we don't really sh- we're not really sure right now. Is is it because Danny's just dealing with the grief, and you know, it's just kind of a this pivotal role in their relationship? Well, we get in the opening too, uh, him you know talking with his friends to, uh, about breaking. He wants to break up with her. Yeah, or is kind of questioning whether he should or not. Yeah, yeah. Um, because it does feel like she's become a little bit overbearing. She relies on him uh, to be a, the emotional support and relies a little bit too much. Um, and you have that, like, again, that I think there's two different elements to these characters, right? Like, so Danny is really uh, an emotional person. She really needs that support. Christian, perhaps not so much. And I do feel like the film sets up this this um, element of, differential relationships uh and people personalities in relationships christian is just not that person to be able to deliver the empathetic ear that danny needs um he tries you know and i think the film does show that it's not like christian is really like aloof and not trying to be that person but at the same time he's just not and so the film kind of goes back and forth about this um sense of empathy um can Christian be that person that empathizes or is he not the right person for Danny to be able to do that? See, I'm going to disagree with you. Mm. I think it's not just when he gets to Sweden, he's a total douche. He's a total douchebag throughout. I, I, I agree to a certain extent, um, that there's, yeah, I mean, is he, is he, is he cold fish the entire time? And very, just really bad at you like you can tell especially even after the death like he's there essentially not because he's trying like you know to help her he's there because like well fuck i was gonna break up with her and then her family dies <laughs> right you gotta stick around for a little bit yeah know? i i i because again before like even before they get to sweden and all that he's like she's like you're going to sweden and he's like you know when yeah, that's that's a really uncomfortable moment too. Yeah, where she she's at the party and literally like deer in the headlights, staring at yeah. Mark. Like, what the fuck are you guys talking about? You're going yeah. to Sweden? Like, you know, so he's already mentally like packed his bags. Probably viewing going to Sweden. Like, I'm gonna start anew. I'm gonna go and fuck some Swedish broads. Mm. You know, and then come back a new man, and I'll have the balls to finally be like, listen, this ain't working. I'm sorry it would happen, but you know. I can't deal with this anymore because it's not good for my own mental health. Mm-hmm. But he's, you know, along for the ride be- because he's trying to be a good soldier. But at the same time, that's that's not going to ever work because if you're, you know, if somebody needs emotional support and you're there like, well, I'm... Suck it up. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that, you know, they're not really helping you out. And if, you know, if that's the best advice they kind of have to give or support thing game you don't need them yeah i mean i i don't disagree i do think that christian himself is just not you know he's, he's not the greatest boyfriend and you do get that like like he forgets her birthday and then he kind of comes up with the well the time change and the but oh, took true wow. took true because yeah what do you want what do you want for me daddy I... yeah i mean 
he definitely you do get that i but i do think again that the film is kind of drawing uh especially with the themes later on in the movie and uh the way that this cult this this uh, they work um is that you're kind of supposed to see that danny and christian even if they even if he kind of is an asshole at times they're just not meant to be together because he fundamentally cannot empathize in the same way that she needs him to um and that is what the cult provides um with the way that they kind of have this almost psychic um emotional connection with each other that they can share in the suffering and pain that we see the um orgasmic pleasure of the film's later sex scene um they all they share in that and that is something that Danny has been missing because no one can. No one can share in that uh, pain and grief that she has. Um, and I think ultimately that is what Midsummer is coming to. And I think Ari Aster uh, previously described this movie as like a uh, horror horror breakup movie. And, you know, that's pretty much what it is. But it does come to the fact that, you know, sometimes the people that we align with, they, they literally cannot share in that grief like you need. And I think that that's what this movie is showing quite a bit. But the way that the film goes about showing how their, their relationship is separating throughout the, you know, the two and a half hours in the theatrical cut um, is a, is a really great uh, sort of slow burn to show their, how they keep separating, how like these, um, things get in the way and they give each other like these, you know, side glances while they're not able to speak to each other. They keep getting pulled away from each other. Um, I really like how Ari Aster does that of, you know, showing them silently staring at each other. Like we, we need to talk about this. And yet we literally cannot talk about this because people keep pulling us away from each other. Um, it's really great, but we do get, we're treated to a nice, uh, a shrooms hallucination uh when, once they get over to sweden they like they get there it's got to be later in the day even uh though we don't know what time it is because like they end up talking about what time it is and it's 9 p.m they take the shrooms and i really like how they're all really excited to take the shrooms and then all of a sudden they're like fucking sacked out on the hill but all having like bad trips um mark in particular but uh the a guy that's kind of like outspoken throughout and you know he likes he's like everybody should lay on the grass josh i need you to lay on the grass it's hilarious um like that that idea of, of taking mushrooms and um going through a bad trip kind of resonates with me because you know even doing weed sometimes i get like an anxiety attack so i can't imagine what it's like to do fucking hallucinogenic yeah no thanks I, I feel like I would be in a bad place. Yeah, I, don't, I just... I don't have the mindset. I know. I just... I know I myself. People, I, I tell people that all the time. It's like, I'm not as anxiety riddled as I used to be, but I'm still too fucking anxiety riddled to be going down that rap. No. I know. You get in that one mindset and then four hours of extreme terror. <laughs> and, and part of your mind's forever rotted off because you got locked into that. Yeah, yeah, no no thanks. I, I think I'll pass on that. And that's they kind of bring that up in this movie too. Like Danny, she's just having a fine trip. She's kind of like relaxed. And then all of a sudden, 
uh, they mentioned family and she fucking runs off into the woods, runs into the outhouse and has like a hallucination of um, her. I think it's her dad behind her in the outhouse when she flicks the uh, match. Did you catch that? Yeah. I didn't know if you could see it with your, your glare. <laughs> it's a great, um, it's a great moment of like just a, like a nice little jump scare without the sting that you get real quick. Um, I like that a lot. And then I like, too, how the um, Ari Aster shoots, like, the trip. Because it's not like your traditional, like, ooh, there's rainbow spirals in the background and stuff like that. You know what I mean? Like, like shimmering kaleidoscope. No, but it is kind of like GTA when you get drunk and everything's super, like, Whoa. Yeah, like, like the uh, aspect of it is kind of going in and out and you're kind of getting like zooms and stuff that you don't really yeah. recognize later on when they do the the trip again uh when they're drinking that um what hallucinogenic drink you get that really great uh, uh effect on the flowers and the grass where it's kind of like moving like uh like it, it's kind of a weird trippy effect that they did um looks like the flowers are kind of like moving and shifting and pulsing um, like a almost like a uh Cronenbergian sort of like movement to it. I really like that. Um. So yeah, they go through this trip. Eventually, get to this uh, this I, I call it a cult. I it's a no. They, I I was laughing my ass off when the one guy was like, "What are we in fucking Waco?" Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, but basically, you know, it's a Swedish community they're a communal place and they're having their midsummer festival and that's all what they all wear white they all are all drink the kool-aid yeah um and i guess the thing too to to note is that this movie does draw on real um norwegian traditions or or purported well yes correct uh, Swedish in the film, but like Norwegian in general, um, like the Atastupen that they talk about is actually Norwegian and purported to actually have taken place at some point, like, you know, uh, in ritualistic past. Um, but like it does, you know, it has that sort of idea of anthropology, right? Cause, uh, Josh in particular is really interested in anthropology of, these uh clans well they're both right they're all right in their thesis yeah technically right like but christian himself specifies at the beginning of the movie he really doesn't have a thesis he doesn't know well, what his is he piggybacks because he's mm-hmm. he's a little shit yeah i do there's that scene where he, he's like you know what i think i'm gonna write my thesis on horga and josh is like are you fucking kidding me right now I, he's like i'm doing mine on i'm already doing that he's like no you're doing yours on midsummer which is like you gotta visit like a bunch of different european countries i am doing this specifically on this yeah 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 it's great like i, I definitely I was, i'd say christian's de- devolution in this film is great just watching him become like uh well, a shit bag mm. but it's not like a cartoonish shit no nope. it's like a realistic you know Wow, this person's fucking just becoming a piece of shit. Yeah, and uh, like you can see that with Josh too. It's a it's a great moment when they when he confronts him and he's like, uh, "No, I'm not going to collaborate with you." You know, like this is you just had this idea right now. <laughs> um, but yeah, they're all they're all studying anthropology, and 
Uh, this kind of brings up the an interesting idea too about uh, it. Not technically, this film doesn't really have a take on that or anything like that. It's not like it's uh, specifically inspired by. But you know, Cannibal Holocaust is uh, another one of those movies that you can bring up that sort of sits in the same realm as Midsummer, where you have people who set out to document the traditions of a tribe, and they find out things that they really probably didn't want to know about or shouldn't have known about. Um, and the problematic elements of, of going to those places and interfering in those traditions. And I think Midsummer does bring that up a bit too. Um, it does treat its cult a little bit more, um, like malevolent than I think, uh, you know, I was going to say, I did, I will say they're not really like, uh, it's not like Cannibal Holocaust. I mean, I haven't seen my. I I know it's not like Cannibal Holocaust though, where they're kind of interloping. They're they've been brought first, you know. Yeah, you're you're right. You're right. They're like they've been brought there. I do feel though, like there's some bad anthropology here at play. Like you, they they're all in some ways they are interlopers. Like Josh is trying to sneak in and get a picture of yeah. their Ruby Raider, Ruby Ratter, whatever it's called, uh, when he's been explicitly told not to, or um. Mark well, obviously why, doesn't understand why, their fucking traditions at all. Well, that's why they're grad students and not after. right, right. But like, you do get that that element of bad anthropology of like you're you they are outsiders to this this cult and they don't understand it and in some ways they don't make the effort to understand it. Um, no, they're incredibly bored and. It, bored for almost the entire thing and then when things start to go ass backwards they're very uh like uh just like what the hell is going on right you know? right and granted, i'm not saying you gotta they have to be like oh we appreciate you your elders fucking throwing themselves off a cliff onto a rock uh I'm not saying you have to do that but i mean they were checked out on the whole thing to begin with. Like, they're just kind of there because, like, yeah, you know. Right. And I think, like, that's another thing that I think is at play in the themes of Midsummer, and why we do find that Danny is able to assimilate later on, besides the emotion element, the grief element, and the, the absence of family that she feels. Um, You also have her, you know, becoming the May Queen because she does kind of assimilate into this cult, and she kind of... Um, she might not like it, like especially in the beginning, like you said, with the at the stoop and where they throw themselves off the cliff. She's obviously horrified, right? And she wants to leave, but at the same time, this, <coughs> sorry, she doesn't interfere in the workings of this the ritual. And um, I think that's part of the reason why she is accepted into this cult later on, and and why um we do see that like uh what's his name um is it. The fuck's the the guy's name that brings them there? Um, Pele. Pele, yeah, Pele. Why Pele is immediately drawn to her because he kind of sees that she's going to be accepting of what they're... And she understands. She's going to understand uh, what they do. And I think that that's kind of why she's she's drawn into this because she allows these the, the ritualistic elements to continue and kind of participates in them the others are very outsider esque, and they they tried they want to understand it, but they don't. Um, they don't actually try to participate or try to uh, respect 
the the cult and the rituals that they perform um which is why bad things happened <laughs> um what man i just pissed on a tree yeah <laughs> which the ancient ceremonial tree that stores all the souls of the dead it's just a tree man <laughs> and, and which which shame on that guy really you gotta take a piss like usually the rule of thumb is you gotta like go go right take a piss 15 go, feet into the woods yeah you go look you go into the wood, like so you you know you just the shame of shame of having onlookers in there. He just like goes right up to the tree outside, like we're eating dinner and bits the ground. Right. If you had to take a shit, would you just pop a squat right there in the middle of the field and? Don't think so. <laughs> yeah, no. Uh, that I mean, obviously, like who would you really? Who would really like just be like, oh, there's a dead tree here in the middle of the field. This big <laughs> fucking tree that's dead, like you know, like. Oh, that can't be important. Why would they keep the street around? Oh, yep. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think we do see like a, a total misunderstanding of their rituals. And while, you know, we don't have to like the fact that they force people to jump off cliffs when they reach a certain age and they are uh, in, intentionally creating incestual babies uh, to become seers or oracles yeah um we you you kind of you have to understand like the ritualistic element of various cultures and that's anthropology in some capacity and they interfere um fucking sit in the head with a male absolutely yeah and not only that but the other guy gets uh fucking his eyes gouged out filled with flowers his lungs pulled out of him and strung up and he's technically still breathing, apparently, as we see later on in that movie. Pretty, pretty grizzly for that guy. Um, what? So, like I was saying, I don't like. We're not meant to see this cult as completely benevolent. Like they, they definitely are malevolent. They are inviting people here under the auspices, auspices that they, um, are just going to experience this special thing in their culture and instead they are the sacrifices for the greater good of the culture um so they're it's not like they're benevolent people uh how do you feel about that how do you feel about like how midsummer treats the uh the tribe or the cult uh the same way i would if i was watching uh the wicker man mm-hmm. a bunch of goddamn goofballs <laughs> Like, uh, that, you know, need to be talked to. Because, because again, because again, like, if you're, you're to sit here and say, well, if it's the way things are, like, I mean, there, there is a line, mm. you know. That's what I was going to ask. Where, see, where is there, the line? Where, who draws the line? Well, that's up for personal interpretation of, like, you know, where your personal line is. Like, you know, on what's acceptable behavior and what's not. You know, what's acceptably culturally and not. Again, like, there is merit to saying, like, you should respect other people's, you know, views and culture. But at the same time, like, there are always going to be parts where there's it's not going to compute you, because of whether or not they're agree again because 
who determines egregious, who doesn't, you know, does it. It's all, that's all based in your own morality and your own, you know, things that you, you know, grew up culturally with. So, I mean, there is, like I said, there's merit to the whole idea of, you know, having an understanding. There's always going to be a line depending on who you are and where you're from on what's acceptable and what's not. You know, mm-hmm. um, saying to throw, have your uh, 72-year-olds throw themselves off a cliff because, well, they get to 75, they're going to get uh, prostate cancer and it's going to be miserable for them. You know, it's not something I'm going to be like, well, you know, they got a point. Yeah, how about how about that? Let's say that this cult did not invite new people in to, to murder. Um, Would that be acceptable in this cult if everybody in their cult is aligned with the fact that this is what just what they do when you're 72 you have this honor of throwing yourself off the cliff and uh for the greater good of the culture and you know you have this midsummer festival where you get to sacrifice some people and they volunteer uh what what about that would that be an acceptable uh society that they partake in at least i mean for me no (laughs) because i mean again like i mean there's if you wanted to choose to, like, uh, like if you were, like, terminally ill with cancer, you decide to, like, well, not terminally ill, but close to it, and you, you decide to, like, I don't want to go through the treatment because I'm old enough and it's not going to be good. I'm just going to ride it out and go. There's a line there. You mm-hmm. still, you know, these are people who are, could still be in very good health, have another 30 years left in them. Yeah, sweets, they're sweets, for God's sake. <laughs> so, you know... They like, do look hale and hearty. Uh, yeah, so, you know? yeah. So you know, so uh, you know, one guy has a ferocious uh, piece of hair. Honestly. Yeah. So I mean, yeah. No, I, I, I mean, I say it, it, it is an interesting question, but I mean, again, at the same time, and honestly, especially especially because we're so uh, we're so far off from like this kind of existing in, especially in Western civilization, it's. It's very hard to relate to. You're, I f- think you're going to be hard to find people who would watch this. And be like, you know, you know, yeah, no, got it made. And 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 you know, I don't, I don't think that the film is trying to make that uh, distinction as well. I just kind of wanted to play devil's advocate yeah. of like where, where does anthropology stand with where you cross the line, where you, you know, you obviously don't participate in the rituals, but you allow them, or you don't allow them because. They cross the line of what a good society or what we we deem a good society should do. It's it's just an interesting question to ponder. Uh, I don't think the movie is trying to make that distinction, though. I do think that the movie is showing you, look what's happening in this cult. Um, and I think at the end, it doesn't make it explicit, but at the end, you see that guy, you know, who has been volunteered to be sacrificed in the burning building, and he is. Looking a little bit scared, and he's and he's the only one to scream out in pain, yeah, terror when he's being burned alive. Exactly, you kind of have that idea that like, is everyone okay with this? Or you know, it's like it's, I would say it's kind of like a poor version of like Star Trek's The Prime Directive of uh, non-interference in cultures that aren't ready for sub uh, for space travel because you don't want to contaminate them. You want them, you know. So even if like a star is about to go Nova, you don't interfere because well, you know can't do it. 
And we kind of get to see that a little bit because Christian, when like when we see Danny being like, this is fucking barbaric and horrible, Christian's like, let me a little bit more understanding, all right? As he's, you know, drinking his uh, hippie tea. And eating a meat pie filled with uh, pubes, pubes yeah. and drinking a glass of urine yeah. beer or whatever they get served there, urine cider. Um, yeah, no, I mean... Is that what that is? Yeah, because you see that uh, pennant at the beginning of the movie where they kind of sh- uh, flow over it, you know, where they talk about, like, their mating ritual. And uh, you see them kind of go through the process, and she's cutting off her pubes, and then she's putting it in a pie, and then she's pissing in a glass. And she's standing standing over it and pissing in the glass. That's why his glass looks darker, if you if you look. Um, and again, and again... She needs... Needs to be hydrated better, right? And again, you talked about this to me outside of the the show. You said the first act is pretty slow and kind of a slog, and it doesn't seem like it's going anywhere. And I said, you know, I think it's more uh, rewarding on your second or third or your your subsequent watch because now you know what you're looking for. And I think when you first watch the movie, you're really not sure what you're looking for. Yeah, there's little details. It was. I agree, but I still think the film does. The first act is a slog. The first hour of this film, it's not bad, but like there's little moments of like, like you said, like the opening's good, but I mean, there's a lot of like little shit that's like the Wicker Man did in, did in like ten minutes, and this thing's taking an hour to get there. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Obviously, I don't disagree. It, and it's, uh, obviously, it pays off as we watch it, and the film starts to move. But I and I'm not saying like showing all these things that are going on at you know this Midsummer Festival and the call. It's all good and stuff, but like, again, like a lot of like the inner trappings and character development they're showing with these people, like you know uh, Danny's friend group. It's all really trite and mealy mouth because there's not, there. It's just there to kind of, like, build a tension that doesn't really exist. Mm-hmm. Because for the most part, well, not for, not for the most part, the party is there to get wiped out. And then, really, the interest should be Danny's growth and Christian's, like, fall into being a douchebag. But it, it takes forever to kind of, like, be interesting. And once things, like, you know, after, like, you know, uh, the ritual suicide, things start to pick up. And everything that's going on starts to, you know, it's building and it builds and it builds. But that, like I said, that first hour can be pretty tedious. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, it definitely has a slowness to it. Um, it, I, I found that it was it was definitely more rewarding watching it the second time. And looking for those details that you know are there uh, because you've seen the movie and you know what happens at the end. So you're looking for those things that occur. And I do, I think it it does um, work better because those details are apparent to you now. So um, it is more rewarding and it doesn't feel as slow. Uh, I didn't really find it to be slow this time, but I do, I think I agree. I think I found it a little bit slower when I watched it the first time. So it is interesting how you can kind of come back to this and, and find it more rewarding. The one thing I will say is just I haven't seen the director's cut, but reading the information about the director's cut and the differences between that and the theatrical cut, which we watched, 
um, it sounds like the director's cut is way too explicit. And it adds, you know, about 23, 24 minutes of footage that I really think is extraneous to this movie um, because it is just too explicit and almost force feeds the viewer uh, information that we should be able to get naturally without being explicitly told that this thing is happening or that the relationship is on the rocks or um because if you can't figure that out yeah yeah i think i it works i think it works so much better when you're giving a, a given the more implicit uh conversations the side glances the things that um are really realistic to a relationship that is kind of going south uh that just doesn't feel like it it used to and I think that that works more in the the theatrical cut. And I can imagine that, you know, just adding t- a, like 27 more minutes or however long it is would just make this feel even longer uh, unnecessarily. So I'm, you know, I think the theatrical cut is the way to go. And I do think it's rewarding if you've seen it before. But I can see why you might think that it would be uh, kind of slow for the first time. At the same time, I'm pretty sure that will be your now. I think I had that same critique with Hereditary. Mm-hmm. That it like felt like a long time to build up, but once, like you said, once you get that payoff that it's building to, it was like holy shit, right? And then it went moving. Would you say that the is slowly, but it's still you know working to the next payoff? Would you say that the the payoff is uh, like the Atastupin, where they jump off the cliff? Like yeah, that's because again, if you're when you're, it just seems like you know a goofball commune. Like oh, everyone's friendly and living in this commune, and so nice. doing mushrooms and yeah, like you know, like everything's really weird and stuff. But huh, you know, it's different and it's new. And all of a sudden, you know, and they're throwing themselves, you know, and not off. and not just throwing them off. They they're like smashing into the ground and if they don't smash into the ground and kill themselves when like again when she hits the after she you know cuts herself and puts the blood on the road and then dies or the way her face smashes into it and the fact is great because it's like holy it's brutal as shit Mm -hmm. and then when the dude does it he jumps legs first (laughs) so he doesn't even die he just breaks his legs and they're like violently broken and as he's you know as they're violently broken, like, it's like preteens are just making fun of them, essentially. Like, you know, I mean, I know the point is, like, they're supposed to be, like, laughing, but also agonizing, too, because, you know, they're feeling his pain. And as they're all, like, you know, writhing about like a bunch of Quakers, the old man with the mallet walks up and just sla- smashes his head in because they're like, well, this happens sometimes, you know. Sometimes they jump and they don't hide and you gotta, you know. Yeah, like, because... Yeah, you, you, mercy kill you can tell that they were expecting it because they brought the big mallet. Yeah. You're like, yeah, no, this has happened before. Um, <laughs> yeah. No, and no one coaches them either. They're not like, hey, uh, probably a good idea to not just dive right right legs first because it's going to be a bad time. <laughs> and he, yeah, he, misses the, he misses the table to land on, like, you know, the, the landing spot to smash yourself. He just boom right into the ground. <laughs> Yeah, it does have a grisly comedicness to it, you know. But um, yeah, like what I like too is uh, with the the mallet. There's no like um, excessive 
element to the mallet. There's not like close-up shots of the mallet. You just see him smack the head and you just get like that nice like, you know, no like ridiculous meat squelching uh, fake Foley effects or anything like that. Just a nice little, you know, realistic like, yep, that guy just had his melon smashed in. Um, And not only that, but they have to do it like three times. And then you get that nice, those nice close-ups later on of just seeing like the absolute melted faces. Yeah, it's just like, it's really brutal and horrific and just great. Yep. Um, I think it does it really well. And, you know, not only that, like the, the film does have a nice brutality to it. Like, like you said, that's not over the top like Evil Dead Rise where it's just like gore for gore's sake and like, <laughs> how, how, how far can we push the buttons of like having a cheese grater and stuff like that on a leg? Uh, this is like, you know, more realistic gore of just like, that's horrific um, and uncomfortable. And not only that, but like a lot of it is a lot of body horror too. You know, Cronenberg would be proud. Um, later on when you see, you know, some of the other people have, that have already been uh, killed, you have like the one guy that's been turned into like a, a fruit basket. You know, basically he's got like, Apples and studies like an edible fruit basket, apples and stuff in his uh, gut, and you know no no arms and just uh like s- straw for 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 arms and legs and stuff. That's great. Um, or when you have uh you think it's Mark in the uh uh the chapel or whatever you want to call it, and uh, it turns out to be the the incestual oracle who's got Mark's face on like Leatherface. Which is hilarious, too, because um, when Christian's asking him about, like, well, how do you... Like, yeah, well, incest, there's gonna be, yeah. There's going to be a lot of incest. Like, no, there's no incest. You know. We, you know, we stretch it out. And then when Josh is asking, he's like, yes, we... Because uh, he's like, well, your oracle is... Uh, Disabled, yeah. He's a, he's a monstrosity. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> He said, uh, monster. I don't think he says it like that, but yeah. Uh, how do you like get to there? Like, you know, he's like, well, How do you like, do you just wait for somebody to pop out? And they're like, No, no, we we make sure we fuck our sister to, like, to get there, you know? Yeah. And you're like, Oh, you know. <laughs> yeah, he's like, <laughs> I do well, like I mean, too how, how that how affects Josh too, because then you see them at dinner and he's kind of just like, staring off into space thinking about it you know what i mean like because the film is again a really good job it may be slow but it does a good job with the characters of showing how they're affected by being here how their entire worldview has like shifted uh because you can just see like the hauntedness of them sitting at dinner like how would you feel if you're like if you ran into a group of people and like yes our oracle that tells us how to live our life is uh the product of uh our my cousin fucking his sister no i mean i i i agree i probably would be like that too but but i mean i think that the the film does a really good job of showing it you know showing how they're affected and um just kind of taking it all in and uh i do yeah i like that too like this fucking kid is scribbling on pages like totally nonsensical incoherent all you could see like some of the pages are just like fucking paint on the yeah, the smatterings like, and they're like, oh yes, he means piss in the glass 
and feed it to your mate, your future mate. <laughs> it is great. But I like, do you think that's um kind of a, a play on religion as well? That you're, we're like, you know, the Bible is at the whims of some fucking random people in the past that you have to. No, not, no, not as much because I mean, see, this is where I think like, well, I mean, it's mainly the crux of Wicker Man because it's not just like, you know, uh, pagan goofballs running around. It's modernity versus old, you know, uh, mm. Christianity versus paganism. Here, I, the religious aspects, I would say, is, it's void. It's just mainly what these people, um, the cult is uh, experiencing, you know, what their religious Rigidosity is because the characters here, and I don't think it's mean to be like, oh, these are supposed to be cultured atheists. I don't think that's what we're getting at with that because I just think it's not something that Ari Aster is really interested in kind of addressing. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not really a focal point. Yeah, I I just think it's, I found it interesting. Like, you know, there, you can draw parallels of having an, incestuous kid make your religion up for you as it goes along and the Bible. But <laughs> especially if you're you're atheist, uh there's kind of a inherent comedy in that. Um how do you how do you feel about like the the whole the May Queen element of uh you know Danny becoming the May Queen as she's um kind of railed against this uh cult for so long. What do you think about that? It's great because it's like uh, literally showing the wear down, like you know, as you know, they're doing the whole maypole dancing. It's uh, literally showing her being worn down, and you know, as she's going through and doing this dance and going on and on, it's she's you know enduring, but at the same time she's giving in to what's going on, and you know, all around her. Yes, she, you know, she's embracing it. It's, you know, I do do think that works really well, the whole maypole dancing bit. Yeah. Like, it's, it's a nice, par- like I said, it's a nice parallel. It's like fucking uh, uh, musical chairs, but with people dancing around. I like, I love seeing like that. <laughs> That one time when the fucking girl gets clotheslined by Florence uh, yeah. <laughs> and she's like, <laughs> all right, I'm out, I guess. <laughs> Just got clotheslined by you. With Frau Forbis and I'm basically sitting there like, stop <laughs> Yeah. But, you're, but like the parallels to the Wicker Man in some elements of this movie are like right there. Yeah. 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 I mean, like, you know, there's that, there is that whole dancing scene in, the Wicker Man and you know the burning at the end of the movie and things like that. It's it's very very Wicker Man esque, uh, but I do think that it goes in a different direction than the Wicker Man does. Uh, you know, there's there is the element of, um, you know, the Wicker Man has a really downbeat ending. Uh, it's you know it, it, this movie, I guess you could see it as downbeat. You could see it as triumphant too. Uh, I'd, I'd say. It's- I think it's downbeat, but at the same time, I think, you know, at a, at a certain point, we're like, oh, you know what, Danny? Understandable. Been through a lot of shit. 
you got roped into a cult, but you know what? You found your people. So good for you. I think I think part of the, I think part of the problem with the film though is because it does introduce the point that she, not only has she you know gone through a traumatizing event, but they put out there like. Well, hold on. Maybe I'm misinterpreting. Is it that she's got bipolar or that her sister has bipolar? No. They, yeah, I, I, I don't think that they're, they're really saying that uh, that Danny has bipolar. She, they're saying that her sister does, and it the, the, the fact that she's having to consistently deal with that is just causing an emotional strain on all of okay. them. So if that, okay, so, so I say, if that's the case, I would say one of the things that's kind of like, because the way I, I mean, maybe I wasn't paying good enough attention, but the way it kind of made it sound like like she was also like bipolar, and it's like, well, the, if that's the case, man, they took that idea and they fucking dropped it right flat because, you know, you didn't really get to see that go on with her. I mean, you get to see the anxiety, obviously. Yeah. And, uh, uh, no, I, I think really what they were going for with Danny is that she she has this grief, you know. And it, it can't really be quelled by Christian. He's not there. Well, even still, though, it's, well, because, again, like, she's constantly, well, I don't know. Because they in the opening, they're saying how she's constantly, you know, relying on Christian for emotional support, and he's a turd, and he can't do that. Mm. Um, Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think, it, I think it's just, I don't know, maybe mixed uh, crosswires on that. Yeah, for me, like, I do think that the ending is in some ways cathartic because it does have that element of you've, she's, she's finally, she's found a family again. She's, um, she's the May Queen because she was able to overcome the, uh, the difficulties. And you can kind of, you can see it as retribution. Does she, does she find retribution in the fact that she's, uh, committing, uh, Christian to this grisly demise of being, uh, paralyzed and, sewed into a bear and set on fire or is christian getting the ultimate uh like honor treatment because it's honorary this is in their culture this is honorary to participate in this because it is um you're you're completing what they call like completing the circle and you're going to be starting anew and it's honorary um and so i i think like it's kind of interesting to see it from both ways because is Danny seeing it as retribution? I'm fucking annoyed that he cheated on me and he wasn't there for me and I want him dead. Or is she seeing it now from the cult's perspective? Um, you can, I think you can see it both ways. I mean, I, I kind of lean towards retribution in a certain capacity because at the end you get that like sinister smile of like, yeah, I fucking did it. Um, but at the same time, you didn't really cheat on her. Right, exactly. Well, she doesn't, she doesn't know that, but but yeah, and and that brings up the ideas of rape and and the um, like the uh, interference with the the cult as well. The, the it's just you can as easily blame the cult for their separation in this uh in Sweden as well. Like who knows what would have happened if they were able to work things out outside of Sweden? Um, would they have broken up? Probably. Would there have been an amicable relationship at that time? Yeah, probably. In Sweden, there's like the manipulation of the cult. You can see them at play. You know, there's that girl who's constantly trying to um, seduce seduce Christian and and witch perform some witchcraft of putting runes in his bed and uh, cutting off her pubes and putting in his meat pie and stuff. You know, nothing better in your pastry than a you know a pew. I do like it too because he's just kind of like it's just a hair. It's okay. It's like mm, yuck. <laughs> 
<laughs> uh, <laughs> definitely wouldn't continue eating that, even if it was just a hair. Uh, yeah. I was like, oh, vintage, 17. <laughs> um, yeah, but I mean, like, again, you don't, like, she doesn't know that. She doesn't realize that he's been drugged and basically in, influenced to do this. Uh, he, she just sees what she sees. And it's it, again, it's like influenced, too, by the cult. They make her go see it. I say it was also a great scene too because as he's uh, having sex with the girl, you know they're copulating. Um, the women are—it's like fucking uh, Suspiria. They're there like naked and like you know moaning with them in pleasure. You know it's kind of like be like this is what you need to do, and you know enjoy, enjoy, enjoy. Give us a child. At the same time, after she sees it, she's, uh, Danny is moaning, but in pain and agony. And those that were following her around are doing the same thing too. And you got that great parallel, you know, between like, you know, right. Like the the pleasure and pain. Yep. And the emotional, uh, psychic connection that they have of they're, they're in her pain, sharing in her pain. And she understands that. And that's kind of like the turning point too, for her as the May queen and, and acceptance into the cult, she sees that they understand her emotional uh, pain, and they she's accepted into that, and that's kind of like her her uh, being born again into this cult. And um, yeah, it's it's a it's a great scene, great parallels there. Um, I love the uh, the help from the naked women who are uh, right there behind Christian, you know. Making sure his thrusts are nice and deep, pushing his booty in there. Wait, he also doesn't look like he's enjoying that at all. Well, I, yeah, I think that I think <laughs> like again, that's I think that is a part of the thing is that like no, it's, no, I know, I know, I know, but it's just it's just funny like watching it though because it's like you know like he, yeah, he's just like no, no, here old lady pushing his ass like yeah, faster, come on. Yeah, it. I mean, it is disconcerting, and like you know, it is because it's rape. It's, he's under the influence. There's that whole scene right before that where he's at dinner and the guy claps in his face. He's like, "Why did you do that?" You know, he's like, and it goes all wobbly, bubbly. Yeah, he's he's he's, he's tripping balls at that time. And he's like having a terrible trip. Uh, yeah, it's it's great. It sounds like a total nightmare. Oh, what's this gonna make me do? It's gonna make you more open to things. Like, oh, he's gonna get he's gonna get pegged. <laughs> Yeah, you do see a lot of his ass, so and full full frontal nudity, as well. Hanging down. Do you think Ari is like now when you're running out of that ten, you gotta run for a little bit with your your dangling swinging around. <laughs> Put your hand over. I call him the embarrassment. Hanging dong, bouncing around. It's great. Uh, what do you think about the music from um, Hacks and Cloak? It is good. It's uh, it does a good job. It's very excuse me, very string heavy. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, a lot of cues are used to kind of uh, not really generate jump scares, but to just you know build tension. Yeah, um, a lot of like droning element to it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, pretty good. I think it, you know definitely suits the. The music definitely sets and the uneasiness and uh, 
goes with the tone of the film pretty well. Yeah, I, I really like it. I think it does a good job. And as I was saying, I actually watched this with headphones, and I really noticed when watching with headphones, the film does a great job of directioning uh, the, the sound. So, like, you'll have uh, Danny, Florence Pugh, right in the middle, and she's kind of, like, swiveling around, and the camera's turning with her as, like, the flutes are being played in the background, and you get the flutes actually going to the left with the direction or the right uh, and not straight up center. And it's really great because it really centers you as well as the in the audience, it, like, in this moment, really putting you in that same moment. Um, I think that is a really good job of... of uh, you know, just like, again, putting you into the scene, um, something that you don't often get uh, when when you just have music kind of blasting at you and it's, it's front and center. Um, and the other thing that I noticed, too, is there's a lot of reflection in this movie. You know, you get a lot of mirror, a lot of uh, in, intentional design set around the reflection of people uh, seeing, most many times seeing them reflected as they're talking to you. And I thought that, 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 you know, the cinematography of that is just really interesting. And overall, the cinematography in Midsummer is very compelling. It's great. If, if, if God, I was going to say, and when I was messaging you, I'm like, when I said like the first act, you know, pretty slow and I wasn't really being attracted to like, uh, to the film, I did say, what God did is Ari Aster know how to, direct and get you know the most out of the cinematographers because just like hereditary the film looks great it's shot great very interesting it it does have you know shots to it that really catch your eye you know uh like when they were coming into sweden you got that nice overhead shot of the car and like what's going on it's kind of like uh Funny games, you know, it's got that nice, you know, yep, just depth to it. Yeah, everything, you know, the setting is incredibly simple, but it looks great. Uh, the color, it's well done. The film, like, you know, it, it, and I say, whether you like what Ari Aster does or not, at least from these, you know, two films, he definitely has a flair to make things look great and everything kind of come together as a film as a whole so so um on a scale of zero to ten tick-borne illnesses what well, <laughs> what would you give midsummer i'll give it an eight i liked it a lot um i don't think it's like a life-changing film i think it is a very good film though uh it's it's a slow burn uh depending on how much you like slow burns, which we do here. I think at times, though, it can be kind of tedious. But I think when it gets to what's paying off, it works. The violence is minimal, but horrific and graphic in a realistic way. Uh, it's a newer kind of take on... Wicker Man for today minus the sing songs. I think it works well. He does his own thing with the idea. The acting throughout, Florence Pugh, Jack Rayner, it's all great. Everyone's, you know, really good. This is a really good film. Uh, do I like it more than Hereditary? 
Probably not. Ah. Uh. But it's, I think the film, all kidding aside from the intro, I do think this film does deserve like the praise that it's gotten. I don't think it's a masterpiece, but I do think Ari Aster does make a damn good film. Very eye-catching. Has a, you know, always, you know, has a great script, knows where he's going. Always pays off. It's really good, and I can't wait to check out his next film. You know, he's definitely, with these two films, kind of gotten me hooked into what he does, because I do think he's got a special eye as of right now. Well, I'd give it an eight. I think it's really good. Yeah, I'm going to I'm gonna give this a nine. Um, I think it's a really good movie. I think I appreciated it more the second time around because I knew kind of what I was looking for, and so I knew to look at the details that were happening that I probably missed the first time I watched the movie. Um, I think that, like I said, I think the, the opening of this movie is particularly harrowing. Um, it's very unsettling, and one of the best scenes that I've seen that relates to death and grief that I could think of. Um, it's very well done. Um, and then I think that the rest of the movie, you know, even though it's a take on the Wicker Man, I think it does its own thing. It's um, compelling in the way that it, it shows the the uh, workings of this ritualistic cult. And um, it works really well to set up this uh, character development that doesn't need to be explicit. Um, that's speaking for the theatrical cut, not the director's cut. And then kind of pays off that build with a great finale that um, I think forces you to think about, first of all, like what this cult is doing for Danny as a character, um, how she has been, uh, has felt emotionally neglected and she does not have the um, support that she feels she needs uh, in Christian. And, you know, kind of forces you to think about the state of how you are able to empathize with other people and the difficulty that that can have uh, and the strain that it can have on relationships. Uh, because ultimately this movie is about grief and relationships and the strain that those things have and take uh, the toll on your relationships. Um, so it's, it's a really, I think it's a compelling theme. I think it does a really good job with that. Um, crafting the characters in the relationship and then breaking it down. And uh I think I, I I don't know. I'm not sure. Do I like Midsummer more than Hereditary? I'm I'm not sure. I think I was gonna say I don't think yeah I don't think he gave Hereditary. Yeah, I I think I do like Midsummer more than Hereditary. Um because I as much as I do like Hereditary, I do find that the third act is goes in a direction that I don't necessarily like as much as the direction I wished it went in. So I think that's um, one of the reasons why I like Midsummer more because I am fully invested in where this movie goes. So yeah, I'm one of those guys that's like, hey, Midsummer's a great movie. Well, as I say, so maybe that'll take me to the second watch because all you were saying for the longest time was... Hereditary's better. Hereditary's better. Midsummer's good, but it's not. It's not hereditary. Now you see it the second time, and you're like, "God damn!" Yeah, yeah. I really, I really enjoyed it uh, the second time, and I don't know. Yeah, maybe, maybe you do. You do need a second watch a little bit down the way and see how, see what you think. 
Because um, I really did, like, like I said, I really did like it, but there were parts in the first act where I went and like threw some shit in the garbage. <laughs> yeah, because yeah, it was just like. A... Well, I'm I'm curious to see what we think about Bo is Afraid, which is next, uh, the next episode next week. You know how long that is? Three hours. Uh, so I'm curious, like, cause I've heard a lot of different things about it. Um, I am not sure, like, I feel like this one is maybe a little bit less in my, uh, interests than Hereditary and, um, Midsummer are. A surrealist tragic comedy horror film. Right. That's like a fucking mouthful. Right. So I'm, I'm not sure how I'm going to feel about it. And I've heard mixed things. I've heard people saying like. I've heard people come out of it and say they're not sure how they feel about it. Um, they think they like it, but maybe not. <laughs> so it kind of is, uh, you know, it's 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 hard to hard to say how we'll feel about it. But I'm interested to see it. So I guess we'll find out. Well, it's got Joaquin Phoenix in it, and I'm not the biggest Joaquin Phoenix fan. You're not. Ladder Forty Two. <laughs> His best movie? No. <laughs> Just kidding. Uh, signs? Come on. Swing away. You're forgetting 40. Oh, sorry. Sorry. I said ladder 42. It's ladder 49. I'm, I apologize. Didn't fact check. You forgot the Joker. Oh, no. I didn't forget the Joker. It's not his best movie. I still ladder 42. I still haven't seen the J- Joker. Not having either. It just looks like a bad take on Taxi Driver and uh, King of Comedy. Like, they like all the clips I saw from it, it's literally just like they just took, again, Scorsese, like they took Taxi Driver and King Comedy, and that's what you got, and everyone thinks it's a fucking masterpiece, when it's probably just like, yeah. yeah. I would rather do uh, the Christopher Nolan trilogy than The Joker. You know, as, as much as I do enjoy the Christopher Nolan trilogy... Pretty fashy. <laughs> it's pretty fashy. We'll have to watch it again because it's been a while. So, but you know what I want to do? Because I mean, it's been populating, and I don't know why. My Facebook reels think I'm an old man. Uh, Batman sixty six. Hmm. Interesting. Getting nice, you know, bat uh, Facebook reels with bat. You know, the TV, show, the N West TV show. <laughs> <laughs> It's hilarious. <laughs> then you know what? That's what we should do. We should do uh, the Adam West Batman movie. Yeah. Sometimes you just can't get rid of a bomb. You ever watch it? No. Oh, then we have to do it. It's fucking great. You've literally never seen the Adam West Batman film? No. Oh, we have to do it. We really do now. It's so fucking good. Hilarious. We'll have to watch it. All right, so you'll want to check out our episode on Bo is Afraid next time because we get to sit through a three-hour movie. So I'm going to come over and eat some popcorn. <laughs> there you go. Um, so if you want to listen to that, you should subscribe to us on pretty much any podcasting app that you can think of. We're on Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, uh, Stitcher, our home base at Anchor.fm, which is now Spotify. So subscribe to us on there. Leave us a nice review. Uh, we're on Facebook and Twitter. Just search for us on there, Blood and Black Rum Podcast. We uh, have an email address at Blood and Black Rum Podcast at gmail.com where you can write to us, let us know what you like, what you don't like. 
what movies you want us to cover, and we'll take that into consideration. And of course, you can donate to us at our Patreon page, uh, patreon.com slash Podcast. You can uh, give us money, and we'll put it back towards beer. So we appreciate that, and uh, thanks in advance. So hope you enjoyed your, our episode on Midsummer, and we hope to see you back next time for our episode on Bo is Afraid. Until then, take care. <laughs>